she's a great candidate if you were running for president in the Republican Party in 2004. I'm not sure she's going to be a great candidate in 2023. Welcome to Power Politics, the Mishpacha podcast exploring the flashpoints of American and global current affairs and how they impact the Jewish community. I'm Benjamin Rose, Mishpacha's editor-at-large. And I'm Maury Litwack, a two-decade veteran of political campaigns at Capitol Hill. Join us weekly as we delve into these critical topics and more on Power Politics. In today's program, Donald Trump has competition. Is there more to come and when? Look up in the sky. Is it a balloon? Is it a UFO? Will it end up bursting the defense budget? We'll also speak today with Matt Lewis, who cuts through the noise of the modern news cycle, and he's going to give us his preview of the looming Trump-DeSantis presidential primary race, and whoever else might jump in for the Republican Party, and of course, our weekly person of influence and our fearless forecast. So I want to start out talking today about the newly enlarged Republican presidential primary field. It was only Donald Trump. Now it's Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. What I look for, because there's a lot of names out there, there's Mike Pence who might jump in, there's Mike Pompeo who was Secretary of State, you've got Tim Scott, Senator of uh, South Carolina, Ted Cruz, uh, Senator in Texas, a bunch of others who I think are likely to jump in. More a couple weeks ago, you mentioned Christine Owen. What I think is going to happen, I think there's going to be like the Triple Crown. You know, if you ever notice in the Kentucky Derby, there's usually like 20, 22 horses and they're all like jostling each other out of the gate for position. And then by the time you get to the Preakness, there's maybe 10 or 12 horses left that are going to give it another try. Then you get to the Belmont, sometimes there's uh, as few as six or eight horses. So I predict a large field at the beginning. And uh, I also predict that the field is going to be winnowed out and fairly quickly. And by the time you get to uh, Super Tuesday, I don't think you'll have more than a half a dozen candidates left and maybe only two or three viable. There's no downside to being in the race. I mean, what's the downside? I love the analogy to horse racing because anyone who's ever looked at horse racing knows that people are betting on all the horses, not one or two of the horses. They bet on all the horses. And if you if someone's betting on you once, they may bet on you again. And so if 1% of the electorate comes out to vote for you, that's great. Maybe 2% votes for you the next time and 5% and 10% and on and on. You have to remember that Biden was once a presidential candidate uh, many, many years ago, and now he's president. So there's no downside to putting your name in the race. It creates an environment where the media pays attention to you, regardless of whether or not you actually are taking yourself seriously. So the field is going to be gigantic and then winnow down significantly. But this is just the beginning. This is absolutely just the beginning. You could see three dozen people in this race because although Trump is still strong with a percentage of the electorate, there's still a lot of meat on the bone. I also want to talk about uh, the vice presidential possibility. I know it's crazy at uh, this stage because we don't even have any clue as to who the nominee is going to be. But when Nikki Haley announced, my feeling was that she's running for vice president, not president. I know she has to announce for president, but I really think that her option is as vice president and it wouldn't be if Donald Trump gets a nomination. Uh, I've heard some reports that Trump wants to maybe choose his running mate early so that people know who he's going to be with. The other possibility who might get into the presidential race, who I think has an excellent chance of being the vice presidential candidate, is Tim Scott, the senator of South Carolina. Now, uh, I interviewed Scott actually many, many years ago when he was first uh, in the House of Representatives. He's a very cerebral man, very mainstream conservative Republican out of the old school. He's also African-American, which I think will help also because the Republicans must have a better kind of balance on their ticket. 
I think they've got to have either someone from the Hispanic community or someone from the African-American community, uh, either at the top of the ticket or number two, in order to really appeal to uh, the entire country. Becoming Trump's vice presidential candidate, especially early on, is a dream for many in the GOP because you can imagine a scenario where he doesn't win and doesn't beat Biden. And then that candidate, if they play their cards right, are the front runner in the subsequent race. So I definitely think that that's going to be a hot ticket and something that most people probably won't say no to just because of the advantage of name ID. I mean, you get to be the front runner potentially next time with Trump's base. So it's a big advantage. What I will, I think this is funny. And, uh, and I give credit to our producer, John, who said that his fearless forecast is, is that Trump will not be picking Mike Pence again, which I think is, is funny. Uh, so we do know there are people that Trump has either uh, alienated or has fought with or things like that, that as much as maybe it is a hot ticket for many of the GOP, there's just a lot of bad blood and a lot of people who just won't run with him or don't care for him or don't like him or have major problems with him. So it should be interesting. But if someone has an opportunity, I think they would jump on it just because their name ID in conservative circles and picking up that Trump base potentially four years after is too, uh, too tempting. Maury, looking ahead to uh, 2024, if I had to pick one issue that I think is maybe uh, not on everyone's radar, although it should be, especially after all the balloon incidents that we've had, I think is defense spending. I never thought I would see the day when Democrats are the ones who are clamoring for higher defense spending and the Republicans are the ones who are crying out for defense spending cuts. Now, I realize the reason why Republicans want cuts is not that they really want to cut the defense budget. This is obviously not the time to do so. However, uh, what I do see is that uh, the Republicans are really desperate to uh, grab this uh, budget balancing bill and to try to get the fiscal house in order. So what they want to do is now turn defense spending back to 2022 levels, where Biden basically already signed a defense appropriation bill for $816 billion. So it's an unusual situation where, uh, again, the Democrats uh, are the party that look like they're tougher on national defense and defense spending. And personally, I think that's something that the Republicans are going to have a problem with, and they're going to have to come to grips with, with a lot of their constituents who uh, would like higher defense spending and would like to see the U.S. do more, uh, shoot the balloons out of the sky a lot faster, and make sure that the skies are really safe, not only from defense purposes, but also uh, just for passenger airlines. If you're Biden or the Biden administration, this is a dream come true. I mean, they've been around long enough. They were there for the in the 80s uh, when Reagan owned defense spending and plussing up the defense budget. Uh, they were there in the 2000s when George W. did the same thing, and they all called the Democrats uh, weak on spending, weak on defense in general. This is a dream. I mean, Biden coming out for tougher defense spending. If you were to ask me, does defense spending ever really whittle down or go down? I would say no. And the reason why I think is not just because it's about safety and that one of the basic human needs is safety, being safe, but also because it's built into this our defense bases all over the country, built into this our defense contractors all over the country. And the defense infrastructure has created an environment where a majority of congressional districts are spending money that is creating jobs in their districts. So, you know, when you talk about 800 plus billion dollars, it's not just what people imagine, which is uh, airplanes and, and missile defense and everything else like that. Those are jobs around the country. Those are your neighbors. And so I think that that's just built in and has to be understood as why 
defense spending is never going to really go down and why it's such a good issue to claim and something now that the current White House occupant is claiming, which is just brilliant. It's smart. Maury, what I found fascinating is that right before we went on air, I was reading a piece uh, where uh, former acting defense secretary Chris Miller, who worked for uh, President Trump, he's making the case for the Pentagon budget to be cut in half. He has a new memoir out called Soldier Secretary, and his argument is, is that the U.S. military should be modeled into a leaner and nimbler fighting force with prioritized areas of focus. He even said that defense spending could be cut as much as 40, 50 percent if uh, America were to do that. Shoot it down. Shoot it down. That's with a balloon. That's with this balloon that's out there. Americans want a strong defense. They want to have protections. They want to know that threats are dealt with. So that may be great for his memoirs and it may sell some books, but I just don't see it. What I think is a good sign is that uh, in Germany now, the new prime minister is starting to talk about that it's really time for Europe to step forward, especially with what's happened in Ukraine and Russia in the past year and other trouble spots. And he's saying that really every country in NATO has to commit uh, 2% of their GDP to defense, which is fascinating because that's what President Trump wanted them to do. And he got a lot of flack for that uh, when he was trying to push them to do that. Now it seems like uh, it just took a little invasion, shall we say, of uh, Ukraine for Europe to realize that they better start spending some money on defense themselves. Otherwise, they're going to find themselves defenseless. Defense spending, very popular in politics, not going away anytime soon. We're thrilled to have with us today one of my favorite people. He's one of my favorite people because he's always writing interesting things. He's always going on cable, saying interesting things. Uh, but I also have known him for a very long time. So I'm going to give his official bio and then my bio. So he is a senior columnist for The Daily Beast. He's the author of a great book called Too Dumb to Fail about the Republican Party. He is someone who, whenever there is something happening in the Republican Party and you're not looking for a partisan sort of vomit, if you will, Matt Lewis is there to give insights and commentary based on both history and actual understandings of the GOP. But I also know Matt Lewis as my first campaign manager when I was first starting in politics and I came knocking on a door and this great guy says, I'll give you a job in politics. Uh, so my friend and the very great commentator, Matt Lewis. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Maury. Thank you. Matt, we want to get right into it with you. Tell me about the presidential race. We are in February right now. Nikki Haley just announced. We've got something called Meatball Ron, which I know you've commented on also, which I thought was something you could just order. But apparently that's uh, that is part of the political dialogue now. Give us your 20,000 foot view of the Republican presidential race. Basically, Donald Trump has about 35% of the vote, and that could be enough for him to become the nominee. These are very loyal voters. I think that this 35% of the Republican electorate will not abandon Trump, and they will not vote for anybody else against him. In a campaign or an election where there are multiple candidates, Donald Trump can win with a plurality. He did it in 2016. He managed to become the nominee without winning the majority of a lot of states, just having a plurality. Republicans have this winner-take-all system. So you could have 35 or 40 percent of the vote and get all the delegates, and you're on your way to the nomination. So uh, I think that is something to keep in mind. And I think clearly the biggest potential competitor for Donald Trump is Ron DeSantis. And I think that's because DeSantis matches Trump in terms of the toughness and the bravado that Donald Trump has. But DeSantis is younger and uh, I think has been a more competent legislator, governor in terms of taking on the woke left. 
And so Donald Trump is coming up with ways to try to take down Ron DeSantis. And if you study Donald Trump, the first thing he almost always has to do before he can dispatch an opponent is to label them. And so you've seen that Trump has been toying with different names. He was calling him Ron DeSanctimonious for a while. I think he's maybe landed on Meatball Ron. And that's pretty much what I think this campaign is going to be. The question is, if the field is big enough and Republicans split their vote, then Donald Trump wins with the plurality. Matt, one of the things you talked about in a recent column is exactly what you said right now about Trump has a way of destroying people and minimizing their accomplishments. And you wrote a line that said, I could almost hear him now. Trump saying with this at a debate, I oversaw the greatest economy in 50 years. Meatball Ron fought against Mickey Mouse, which is basically a line uh, to talk about how uh, DeSantis has taken on Disney and uh, the perks they get uh, quite successfully, as a matter of fact. But you made a good point. How does DeSantis get around that? How does DeSantis, when he's in a debate with Trump, get around the fact that Trump was president for four years and he's been governor for five of Florida? Nice big state, but still not the same as being president of the United States. Trump is a master at taking people down and also simplifying things in a way that really resonates. I mean, that that whole line, that's sort of a, a mock line that I came up with about, you know, I had the greatest economy in the world. This guy took on Mickey Mouse. It's a way that Trump can really diminish his opponents and mock them in a really pithy way. He's a master. You got to give the guy credit for being able to do that, to simplify things and to attack people. And often Donald Trump can attack people on things that he himself is guilty of. It's very hypocritical, but nobody else in America can pull it off. Donald Trump can pull it off. I think the question for Ron DeSantis is, can he rise to the occasion? I mean, Ron DeSantis, again, I think uh, on paper is a really tough competitor for Donald Trump because he has all the things that Republicans like about Trump, his, his sort of toughness. He's a fighter, but he's also younger. And he also, I think, is actually more, a more competent uh, when it comes to taking on the left, at least in Florida. But again, the points I've just made are all sort of ro logical, rational points. That's not how Donald Trump works. Donald Trump works more on an emotional level, on a gut level. Uh, he's a kind of a gut politician. So I think the question is, in a debate, can Ron DeSantis actually rise to the occasion and take on Donald Trump and fend off and counterpunch? And I'm not sure we know that. Ron DeSantis right now, what he does as governor of Florida essentially is stand behind a podium and dominate a press corps in Florida. I don't know if that translates to a debate stage where Donald Trump is, is you know, throwing these uh, barbs at him all constantly. Matt, I want to ask, what's the best way for DeSantis to do this? I was listening to Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana on uh, Fox News. And he basically said that voters want someone to step up and tell them how they're going to make things better and do things better. Now, I would think that that's DeSantis' strength. He can talk about how he can make things and do things better. However, is the only way that he could possibly defeat Trump is to descend into what we used to call when I was a kid a rank-out fight with him and try to beat him on those terms? That's the danger of Donald Trump, right? If you don't respond to him and you don't fight back, then you allow him to define you and destroy you. You look weak. But if you do fight back, now you've descended into the mud with Donald Trump. That's the fundamental problem with taking on Trump. You don't punch back. He defines you. You do punch back. Now you're playing on his level and you can't beat Donald Trump at his own game. I mean, I think DeSantis has to walk a very fine line. He has to make the rational argument for himself, which is basically look, it's time for generational change. We can't have another 80-year-old president. 
And I'm not chaotic. I'm not crazy. If you want a conservative agenda, I can do it. But then I think he also has to be willing to mix it up to a certain degree without getting dragged into the gutter. That's a tall order. It's really a thin line he has to walk. I'm saying Nikki Haley jumped into the race, and uh, in her initial announcement, she made some sort of statement that it's going to be difficult to bully her. And one of the reasons is because uh, she kicks back and she kicks back with heels. Do you think that was a good line for her? Or do you think that maybe uh, degraded her a little bit or will come back to cost her? Well, look, it's funny, right? Because the Republican Party ostensibly doesn't believe in identity politics and we aren't supposed to care about, you know, affirmative action. You know, don't vote for someone just because they're a woman or just because they're a minority. And I think obviously Nikki Haley is playing it up. It's probably actually a smart move for her, though, because number one, the contrast is pretty obvious. She's the only woman in the race. She may very well end up being the only woman in a in a large field. And I think that she delivers it in a way that's meant to be sort of cute, partially a joke. Like she also says sometimes, may the best woman win. So I think it probably does work for her. I, I think her bigger problem is that she has really been all over on both sides of, of a lot of issues, including the big issue is obviously Donald Trump. She has sucked up to Trump and defended Trump, and she's also criticized Trump and chastised Trump. And she seems to kind of waver back and forth. I feel like she's probably alienated people on both sides, right? Never Trump conservatives who don't like Trump can't trust Nikki Haley. And MAGA Trump Republicans who love Trump also can't trust Nikki Haley. She's a great candidate if you were running for president in the Republican Party in 2004. I'm not sure she's going to be a great candidate in 2023. My question is, when you break down the Republican Party the way you did, 35% are locked in for Trump, right? Does that not leave 65%? Is there not another 65% out there? And my second question for you is, is that 35% really impenetrable? You really can't get through it? I mean, it used to be that you had the Dixiecrats and you had this side of the Republican Party and you had people fighting for different pieces. And can you break this down for us? Can we look at it? Because I think when you start talking about what a Nikki Haley's going after, I think the establishment Republican Party is excited about her. But maybe that establishment party is 2% of the electorate or less. Maybe it's just you live in the Beltway. Maybe it's just a slice of the Beltway that you go and have dinner and drinks with. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Well, first, Maury, I now live in West Virginia. I'm a populist, rural country guy, and, and I resent that coming from uh, D.C. elites and New York elites. I am now a man of the people, Maury. But to your point, look, I think that it's very clear that Donald Trump has a basement of 35 percent, like he owns 35 percent of the Republican electorate. We've seen this time again. I've never seen a poll where he doesn't dominate and really own about 35%. And keep in mind, these are voters who've been with him through a lot. They've been with him through him lying about the 2020 election. They've been with him through the Capitol riot. They've been with him through Charlottesville. So if they were going to abandon him, it would have happened by now. I can't imagine that there would be any new information that would come out that would peel off these 35%. I mean, Donald Trump himself said, if I stood on Fifth Avenue and shot somebody, they wouldn't abandon me. That's basically who these people are. So I think it's at least 35%. That's not to say Trump couldn't do better. I think he could grow his coalition even and the Republican electorate, but there's 35% who are locked in. Now, what that means though, is that there are a lot of voters, in fact, a majority of voters who are up for grabs. 
The problem is, what if 10 people run for office? What if Nikki Haley gets 5% and uh, DeSantis gets 40% and Pompeo gets 3% and Bolton gets 2%? You could cobble together a, you know, a coalition whereby Donald Trump is able to win with a plurality of the vote uh, and take all the delegates, which is the way that many of the Republican uh, states operate in the primary. So I think that it is entirely conceivable that Donald Trump becomes the nominee based on 35% uh, locked-in support. Matt, I have one final question for you, and I'm going to refer back now to the Fox News interview with Senator Kennedy from Louisiana, when uh, he said at the end that whatever is going to happen in uh, the Republican primary season, the experts are going to be wrong. I'm not exactly sure what he meant by that, because they left it at that. So I'm going to follow up with you, and I'm going to ask you, If there's one dark horse in the field, someone we haven't thought about, or even someone whose name has been mentioned, who would have an opportunity to upset Trump, upset DeSantis, who do you think it'll be? Well, I mean, here so far, we have not mentioned Tim Scott or Glenn Youngkin. Tim Scott is a senator from South Carolina. That becomes interesting because he would be potentially running against Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina. And he is very compelling. I'm not sure that the Republican Party today wants a candidate that is as likable and optimistic as he is, but maybe it's time for a change. So Tim Scott is someone to keep an eye on. And Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, is also someone that I think will run. In Virginia, you cannot run for re-election as governor. So he basically is term limited out of office. He's probably going to run for president in my estimation. And I think he's someone who could catch fire, especially if Ron DeSantis it ends up being an empty suit. If DeSantis kind of collapses and isn't up for the challenge, uh, I think Glenn Youngkin could fill that role. Thank you, Matt, for being on the program. We have a segment that we do at the end of the program called Fearless Forecast. Can you give us your fearless forecast? Trump makes it out of the primary. It's Trump versus Biden. Give us your fearless forecast for that race. Uh, I think that if everything is according to plan, if nothing crazy happens, Joe Biden would be reelected. But The thing is, once you become the nominee of a major party, you have a chance to be president. And if Joe Biden were to, you know, collapse, you know, or trip, fall off of a stage in October of 2024, if James Comey were to reappear and open another investigation, um, if a recession, like a severe recession were to hit on Joe Biden's watch as he is the incumbent president, then Donald Trump could win. It is not an insane idea. I wouldn't bet on it. I think the odds are Joe Biden would be reelected. But look, it's possible that neither Trump nor Biden will be the nominee of their party. And I have to say, we just had our Super Bowl here uh, in the U.S. of A. And before the game, all of Fox's experts, right? So these are former NFL players and coaches, people like Jimmy Johnson, former coach of the Dallas Cowboys, uh, Terry Bradshaw, former quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers. There were like five of them. All five of them predicted that the Philadelphia Eagles would win the Super Bowl. And of course, that did not happen. My point is, it's the experts don't know nothing. That's why they play the game. And uh, I think we can get insight and some wisdom and historical context from people who follow politics closely. But nobody knows what's going to happen. And that's why that's why it's fun to watch. Amazing. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Maury, my takeaway from having listened to Matt Lewis is that I think he's right that Ron DeSantis is going to have a much harder time than a lot of people think when it comes to the campaign. 
uh, we used a sports analogy earlier about the Kentucky Derby and uh, the Triple Crown races. I'll use another one. Trump has been president. He's been a major leaguer. Ron DeSantis, for all of his talent and for all of uh, the support that he's building and all of his good showing in the polls, uh, he's still, in a sense, in the Triple A's. Will he be able to make that big leap forward in order to uh, run in the major leagues and to uh, race with Donald Trump? Remains to be seen. Matt uh, left that as a real question mark, and DeSantis has a lot of work to do. My takeaway is we don't know. I love the football analogy, but we just don't know. And the idea that there could be Democratic and Republican presidential candidates that we never even dreamed of just shows you how far away this race is and how all the factors that may go into the presidential campaign going forward. Moving ahead now to uh, the influencer of the week. Mine is pretty easy. After having gotten stuck in uh, traffic the other day when there was this big demonstration in front of the Knesset, and it took me an hour and a half to get home, a drive that usually takes me 20, 25 minutes that time of day. So I'm going to uh, give the Influencer of the Week award to Israel President Yitzhak Herzog, who has basically stepped into the fray. He stepped into the very controversial situation that's going on uh, about judiciary reform, which we've discussed on previous podcasts. And uh, he's trying to be the peacemaker, as he always has been, actually, throughout his career. Uh, when he was a lawyer uh, for one of the top law firms here in Israel, he was known as the facilitator. He was known as the one who brought people together. Uh, he's not a litigator. He's not the person who's going to uh, hammer the heads together in order to get them to make a deal either. But he will facilitate. And the fact that basically he's been able to uh, soften the tone and to uh, bring the conversation back down to a normal level and, and lower the temperature from a very high fever to uh, maybe a, a slight elevation is to his credit. Uh, how it's going to turn out, uh, we're in this for the long haul. It's going to take a long time to see what passes and uh, what doesn't pass. But the fact that Herzog was able to step in and to uh, change what looked like a, uh, a very negative situation and do so in a very short period of time. So he's my influencer of the week. It's always the influencer that keeps us in traffic, isn't it? My influencer didn't keep me in traffic, but my influencer has been around for a very long time, certainly uh, before I was alive, certainly before I've been involved in politics, and that's Senator Dianne Feinstein. The senator has been involved in congressional life for a very long time, but she announced her retirement. I think the reason why it's such an important thing, although the announcement was expected, is that she really has owned California politics and Bay Area politics. Most of the politics in California go through the San Francisco area and the Bay Area, but she really started it. I mean, this is someone who was involved in San Francisco city council politics over 50 years ago. I mean, she's been really a staple there and built that sort of Bay Area power base, uh, helped to build the Bay Area power base. And so I think it's a big deal that she's leaving, not just because it, who is going to take over as the California senator, but I think it's the end of an era. And I, I think it's a big deal and, and it should be noted. Could Nancy Pelosi be far behind in announcing her retirement? It's surprising to me that she didn't announce it. I always think it's interesting with someone who is at the height of the power sort of sticking around. It reminds me of John Quincy Adams, who, uh, after he was president, went back and literally was a member of the House. So it's interesting. I think if you love politics, you stick around. My feeling is that we'll have to wait uh, a little bit longer, uh, just like uh, my fearless forecast of a few weeks ago, where I mentioned that I thought Bernie Sanders might well drop out also. Uh, had I said uh, Diane Feinstein, I would have looked a lot smarter, but uh, it all remains to be seen. But uh, now today, uh, my new fearless forecast, and I'm going to go back to uh, what I said before about uh, the Israeli situation, 
You know, when everybody thought that the new Israeli government was installed, everyone thought how it was going to be, oh, such a right-wing government uh, was going to cause us all sorts of trouble. And one of the things I wrote is that they're not going to be as right-wing as everyone thinks. And also, they're not going to uh, be as powerful as everyone thinks. And so far, uh, it looks like uh, there were a couple of good calls on my part there. I'm going to go a step further today. I think we're going to see a major shakeup and uh, instability in the Israeli government within the next couple of months. It could be that Ramadan comes around in another month and the Israeli police and border patrol and maybe even the IDF has to get much tougher on uh, potential Arab violence than uh, we've seen to date. And that could cause some sort of international crisis as well. Or it just could be that uh, some of the people who have been very patient so far, uh, like Itamar Ben-Gvir and Batsala Smotrich, will say to uh, Netanyahu, listen, we made a deal. We have coalition agreements. You're not honoring them. And we're uh, going to uh, threaten to upend this coalition unless you do something fast. And while I would normally think you wouldn't see that for at least six to eight months, I think uh, we could be seeing it already in the next couple of months. My fearless forecast is um, about the former Vice President Pence. There's talk that he's been basically putting out a legal strategy to avoid having to appear before the special counsel in the 2020 elections. And I do think he's going to be successful in either delaying or, or outright avoiding it because his strategy is very clever, which is he was the president of the Senate. Technically, that gives him constitutional uh, ability to basically say, I'm part of the legislative process uh, in a nutshell, and I, I'm protected from uh, such a subpoena. And so I do think it'll be successful. And it's one of those, I find myself more and more fearless forecast trying to give the listeners, you know, there's more smoke than fire here. And I think whether that was with the debt ceiling and how that died down or now this, I think that it's not going to be a real issue. And I think the legal strategy and legal defense is a clever tactic, which will work for him and allow him to just continue to run. I think it either delays it or defers it to some very, very large degree or outright it works. And it just also reminds you of the clever balancing act a vice president has between being part of the administration, also part of the legislative branch as well, and the nuance that is uh, the Constitution. Okay, Maury, thanks for those insights. And uh, that about wraps it up for today. I wouldn't mind hearing uh, some of our listeners come up with uh, their own fearless forecasts and uh, write them in, send them in to us, and uh, let us know what you're thinking and uh, what you think is going to happen. And uh, if we get enough, then maybe we can uh, discuss them in future uh, podcasts. You are listening to Power Politics, unpacking the power players shaping our world, a Mishpacha podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating and share with your friends. Have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on Twitter at the Mishpacha or at mishpacha.com forward slash power politics. This episode was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts with sound design by Cedar Media Studios. See you next week.